Hello, everybody. This is Volts for November 15th, 2023. An insider's view of the Biden years in clean energy policy. I'm your host, David Roberts. Hey, Volties, before I get to today's pod, a quick note slash apology. Last week in my crossover episode with the Catalyst pod, I was bantering with Shale Khan and made a clumsy attempt at a joke, referring to our audiences as handsome and virile. Ugh. Both those adjectives are typically associated with men, which might have made it seem like I think of Volt's audience as primarily male. So I just want to say emphatically, for the record, that I do not think that. Most of my favorite feedback and correspondence has come from non-dudes, and most of my favorite pods have featured them. I know and deeply value the fact that there are energy nerds of all genders out there listening. I'm sorry if my verbal ineptitude left any other impression. Anyway, on to today's episode. As I previewed for Volt subscribers a few weeks ago, I attended the third annual Yale Clean Energy Conference last week. It was a blast. It's always energizing, pardon the pun, to be surrounded by so many young people doing so much cool stuff. It gives this crusty old blogger some hope. While I was there, I recorded a podcast live on stage with Sonia Agarwal. Sonia is well known in energy world. She co-founded with previous Volts guest Hal Harvey, the energy policy think tank Energy Innovation, where she worked for years before heading into the Biden administration as the Special Assistant to the President for Climate Policy Innovation and Deployment. She recently re-emerged from the belly of that beast and is now back running Energy Innovation. I chatted with her about her experiences in the administration, what policymaking looks like close up, what she's proud of getting into law, and what gaps remain in U.S. energy policy. It was super fun. Thanks to Sonia, thanks to the kind folks at Yale, and thanks to all of y'all for listening. Enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone. It's so nice to see you all again. For those who don't know me or didn't see me uh, when we kicked off this conference, I'm Rob Klee. I'm our Director of Clean Energy Programming at the Center for Business and Environment at Yale. You last saw me when I was up here giving uh, part of that opening sort of panel. So I think it's fitting and it is actually my great pleasure and privilege to introduce the final event of our Yale Clean Energy Conference. And you're all in for a real treat, a live broadcast of David Roberts' Volts podcast with his special guest, Sonia Agarwal, CEO of Energy Innovation and former special assistant for the president on climate policy innovation deployment, which helped develop the bipartisan infrastructure law in IRA. So David's going to tell you all about Sonia. It's really his show. But I wanted to take a moment to geek out a little about the fact that I'm sharing the stage for even just a minute with David Roberts. He's been my go-to source for the latest thoughtful, in-depth info on clean energy technology, on policy, on climate change, on politics, and all the other stuff that I actually try to teach here at Yale. He's been reading, writing, talking, and thinking about this for over 15 years at places like Vox, at Grist, 
and now his own Volt's podcast and newsletter. And he has just a way of making this complicated, crazy, technical, clean energy world make sense in a way that's actually kind of freewheeling, kind of fun, kind of funny. And he does it through these conversations with amazing people where the hour does seem to just fly right by. Now, I know I'm not alone in the Dave Roberts fan club. There are a lot of you in that fan club, and I see some of you like raising hands here. Um, but did you know that Nick Offerman is also a fan, Parks and Rec fame as well, which is, as a former Parks and Rec commissioner, I truly enjoy the fact <laughs> that Nick Offerman, no, I wasn't like Nick <laughs> for his character. So as a big fan, I'm so excited to introduce David Roberts and Sonia Agarwal. If everyone can welcome them with a round of applause. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. Thanks to Yale for having us. It's been a fascinating uh, conference. I've had some fascinating conversations the last couple of days. Hi to the audience at home of the Volts listeners who will be hearing this uh, in a little while. You'll just have to uh, trust that this is live and a bunch of people are here. This is not, these are not, these are not pre-recorded uh, audience noises. I'm so excited to be here with Sonia, Sonia Agarwal. She has been working uh, for years at an energy policy think tank called Energy Innovation, which is spectacular, um, does great work, started by the great Hal Harvey, who has been on the pod before, um, does uh, a lot of great uh, work and research, and then has spent the last couple of years, two years, in the Biden administration as the senior special advisor for something and something and something and something, some sort of senior advisor on energy stuff. Uh, so she's got a great um, inside and outside view. And so I thought we would just kind of talk a little bit about what the policymaking process was like these last couple of years in the Biden administration, what they got accomplished, what they didn't get accomplished, what's left to accomplish, all these types of things. So. I'm excited, and then at the end, uh, we'll take some questions, hopefully, have some q and I'll try to be brief against my nature and uh, leave some time. So Sonia, first I'd just like to hear um, about your experience this last three or, or four years. Tell us sort of like how, did you get a phone call from, like who called you and, and what did they offer you and what were you doing exactly, senior advisor on something, something, but like nuts and bolts, what were you in there working on? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dave, and thank you to everyone here at Yale for having us and uh, hosting such an interesting collection of human beings doing very cool work on the physical stuff that we need to get out into the economy to make this whole transition happen. I'm so grateful for all that work and for you all organizing this. So in the beginning, <laughs> we uh, set out to try to understand which policies could be used to drive the kind of deep decarbonization we need to meet the climate moment. So what? how do we get to the scale of deploying all this clean stuff everywhere uh, that would actually bend down our greenhouse gas emissions? And we did that by building an analytical model that looked at uh, all these options for policies and how could they come together to reduce not just greenhouse gas pollution, but also pollution of all kinds and thereby improve people's health and uh, how much was it going to cost and what were going to be the job implications and all of these things. So I sort of feel like uh, for the prior decade before the phone call did arrive to come <laughs> uh, join the team at the White House, 
I had been preparing for that very moment um, <laughs> with an incredible group of, of people at Energy Innovation and beyond as well. When I decided to join, I found it really exciting because it was the first time ever that any president was going to have a national climate advisor as one of the four main policy advisors inside the White House. So before, you know, there's a national security advisor who's advising on security stuff, a national economic director who is looking over all the various complexities of our giant economy, and then a domestic policy council, which is looking at um, how do we actually make sure that our schools and hospitals and all of those types of things are, are uh, how they need to be. But there had never been climate in the room at that level of decision making. And that's really profound because at this point in the decisive decade on climate, all policy has to be climate policy. And so as we think about the dimensions of policy in any of those categories, we need to be considering how does that actually impact our capability to meet our climate goals. So Gina McCarthy was the first ever national climate advisor, and I joined her team to work on all kinds of uh, the details of how we would get the policies across the finish line. Did you have a particular remit or part of the economy you were looking at, or were you just looking over the whole thing? It's a big, like, it's big. <laughs> the whole thing. Um, yeah, so I was pretty much the tons guy. So I was the, like the, the, the tons guy, like the tons <laughs> of greenhouse gas emissions. So where are the tons? Find all the tons, get rid of as many tons as possible of greenhouse Find gas emissions. Um, that was a lot of my job. So helping to figure out what our target for economy-wide greenhouse gas emission reduction should be in 2030, for example, which is something the president set on Earth Day his first year, 50 to 52% reduction below 2005 levels in 2030. So that's a pretty profound acceleration in the pace of decarbonization that we set our sights on. And then as we were kind of developing the policies in Build Back Better, which turned into um, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, I was helping to ensure that all those policies were adding up to what we need to get done. Uh, how do we prioritize the various policies in those pieces of legislation so that we could actually make the greenhouse gas impact that uh, we needed to? And then I also focused a lot on innovation and manufacturing as part of the remit. So that was also all around how do we prioritize the technologies that we need to commercialize right now in order to make them available at scale in time to really help us solve this very pressing issue. I'm curious how free of a hand your team had to come up with policies or were there like do this or don't do this? Like, were there, were there parameters set? Like, I assume if you guys had come out and said, what we need is a giant carbon tax, you would have gotten shut down. So were there, <laughs> how free were your, were your hands? I would say that they were very free in the context of the fact that the president is elected by the American public and is there to, uh, you know, um, represent the best interests of what people want, right? So, there were a lot of political issues happening, right? When the president took office, there was a pandemic, there was inflation, there was all kinds of um, really challenging problems. So within those constraints, um, we certainly had a lot of run room to figure out what was the suite of climate policies that could also 
deliver benefits in all those other political dimensions that we needed to fulfill. Um, and also, I will say, there's been decades of devoted people who have been thinking about what policies can help us bend down the emissions curve. So it's not like we walked in and had this blank sheet of paper and came up with stuff. We were standing on the shoulders of so many people who have been doing this research and work for so long. And so, you know, we had a good menu, but we, we got <laughs> to pick from it. <laughs> I have a question, uh, not totally sure how to ask it, but, but even for those of us who follow this stuff pretty closely and are you know, policy obsessed, the actual making of the policy in the room is a little bit of a black box to everybody who, who's not inside the room. So you know, I think on the one hand you have sort of people who have a cynical view who are just like, this is what big corporations said they wanted, or this is, you know, like, you have to do this for this to get this senator's vote. You know, it's just all this like horse trading and kind of vaguely corrupt stuff. But 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 I also heard a couple of things. You know, in the process, a couple of things that stuck in my head. One was um, you know in talking with Jesse Jenkins, uh, who's a, a professor at Princeton who does modeling, who does energy modeling with his team. One of the points he made was like this is the first time that climate policymakers have had models there to test in real time, sort of as things are going, to sort of test their assumptions against. And then also, when I was talking to Saul Griffith, another uh, sort of uh, energy nerd who's also been on the pod, he said something that, that stuck in my head. He's like, this is the first climate policy where the engineers got the first run at it before the lawyers and the economists, where the engineers actually came up with the policy. So both those things made me think like, maybe this is actually like a rational, you know, like evidence-based uh, thing going on inside there. Wouldn't that be nice? So like between those two poles of the sort of cynicism of horse trading and the like, you know, actual technocratic using models and, and empirical data, where, where, where were we in the in between those there? Like, was it if people could have seen it, would they be heartened or would they be depressed? <laughs> um, it's a big question, Dave. <laughs> I know um, it's, it's also uh, very big. So I think um, the answer is that people would be really heartened because it is, in many ways, as Jesse and Saul have described. So, okay, let me answer this in two ways because there was Build Back Better that kind of split into these laws, the bipartisan infrastructure law, to some de degree, the CHIPS Act, and then the Inflation Reduction Act. And I would say, especially in the context of the Inflation Reduction Act, that was a bill that was passed with only Democrats. No Republicans voted for that bill. The other two were bipartisan bills. In the final bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really what is the engine of climate progress and a lot of the ways that we are going to cut energy costs for uh, families and businesses, uh, that one was incredibly analytically informed. Um, it was from the beginning, uh, we had an overall greenhouse gas emission reduction goal. We were trying to find programs, analyzing them line by line with the amount of money that would be spent on each of those programs to understand how those could actually add up to the greenhouse gas emission reductions that were required. At the same time, keeping the Democratic coalition together was a big challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And uh, Senator Schumer was incredible at that. And he, I think, should get a lot of credit for that. I mean, that was really amazing what he and his incredible team of people were able to get done on that front. Uh, that meant that uh, throughout the process, certain things were painfully cut from the list of things that we wanted to see get across the finish line. At the same time, at every juncture when something big was cut, tons were in the room, right? So like the analysis was in the room and uh, we were able to then quickly say, look, you know, what can we add back in other ways that might help us get to a similar level of impact uh, than before we lost whatever the thing was. So there was a lot of that kind of real-time policy development that um, and prioritization uh, that really enabled us to preserve the greenhouse gas impact of the law, even though we lost quite a lot of the individual line items along the way. Of those things that got cut mm. along the way. Is there is there anyone in particular that you lose sleep about that you were sorry to see go? Um, I lost a lot of sleep along the way. So now I'm just <laughs> catching up on that. Um, but besides, um, besides the sleep part, honestly, um, the most painful for me was we had a clean electricity performance program, which ah, yes. dropped out early-ish in the... <laughs> <laughs> Early-ish in the process, and you know that was the closest thing that we were going to get to a federal clean energy standard, or just some sort of real goal of where we were going over time in terms of the percent of our electricity that comes from zero-emitting sources. But you know, to the earlier point, you know that was really tough when that fell out. Um, but we were actually able to add some other programs um, in after that fell out that then did get us back a number of the greenhouse gas emission tons that we lost. And so just for the audience's sake, the clean, I can never remember the friggin' clean energy Performance program. Performance program. The, the, the name changed. It changed many, many times. I feel like times. a couple of times. Yeah, you could call it whatever you it want. Was basically, <laughs> uh, it was basically a national clean energy standard that would have required utilities to hit certain targets with their clean energy, except not require because you can't do requirements in a, in a reconciliation bill. So it basically would have bribed them to hit those okay, targets. That's not the word I would use, <laughs> but it included both incentives and penalties. And that was one of the only places in the Inflation Reduction Act that actually included penalties, aside from a relatively small methane emissions fee. But uh, yes, that's, that's exactly right. And was there a particular baby you had that made it through the thing that you're particularly proud of that was like your, your, your thing that you were cheerleading for? Like, did you Yes, I feel like I was cheerleading the whole thing. I really was, you know, so very much passionately uh, trying to help this get over the finish line. But um, if I were to pick one thing, I think the uh, rural clean energy programs uh, were something that I focused a lot of time on because uh, rural co-ops are nonprofits that serve uh, more than 90% of the persistent poverty counties in America. And this, at the end of the day, what we were able to get across the finish line in terms of investments for these nonprofit rural cooperative electricity providers is the largest investment ever in rural electricity, including 
being bigger than the original 1930s Rural Electrification Act that first brought reliable power to rural areas in the United States. So this is really a transformational investment in those critical communities that need lower energy costs and clean energy can provide it. But because they've kind of been locked into these old, expensive coal contracts for a very long time and they don't have the capital to make that transition and actually access energy that is today cheaper and cleaner, it's very exciting that that could be right on the cusp for us. And, and, and part of that, or, or in addition to that, similar to that nonprofit and co-op utilities get the rebates or what, yeah, yeah. what am I so, trying to say what I'm trying to say? Yeah, what I'm sure. talking about. <laughs> um, I think you were trying to say um, that we have these tax credits for clean energy. Um, and before the tax credits for clean energy that did exist before, um, but were extended in the Inflation Reduction Act, before you had to have a tax liability in order to get the tax credit, right? Um, and so if you were a nonprofit, then you weren't really having a tax liability. And so therefore, these nonprofit rural co-ops couldn't really access all of the incentives for clean energy that you know, private developers or other you know, private utilities could. So this change to the way that the tax credits are um, administered now enables nonprofits to benefit from those clean energy incentives also. Yeah, and that's these munis, these co-op utilities, and also nonprofits, churches. Yeah, it's really uh, an under-celebrated part of the bill, I think. I mean, one pleasant surprise was, as you say, like some things got taken out. We keep using the passive voice. Joe Manchin kept taking things out, um, <laughs> but I was so I was really shocked. Like when we all <laughs> woke up to find out that he was going to pass it after all. That in the end, like. He didn't really mess with, like he took some things out, but he didn't mess a lot with the things that were on paper. Like what ended up passing in the end is remarkably similar to that analytically produced early product, which is just not something you see very often. But so my, my question is, I mean, I think it's now in energy world, in my world, I think people understand that national decarbonization is that clean electrification is the backbone of decarbonization. That decarbonization is primarily about clean electrification. And to me, it was very, I was very pleasantly surprised to find that the bill, this is another thing Saul pounds the table about and wants to make sure everybody knows that the bill was, the bill was mostly about electrification. Like the bulk of the money, the bulk of the provisions were about electrification. But so I, I guess my question is, do you find that the people in the administration outside energy world get that? Like, is that story popularly understood? Like, if I asked Joe Biden, would he get that? Would Kamala Harris get that? Like, is the primacy of clean electrification, has that gone beyond our world and is popularly understood now in, in policy circles, do you think? Well, I think... Um Policy circles is a different question than general population. I would say the answer to general population is not really, um, but you know, people just, if they ever think about energy, they're thinking about how much it costs and what the bill is at the end of the day and whether their lights come on when they, when they flip the switch. Um, and so therefore, in other parts of the policy circles, because we 
do live in a democracy where people are truly trying to represent uh, what, what people who voted them into office um, want, uh, those are very big deals. How much is the energy going to cost and whether it's going to be reliable? And I think that to a large degree, the electrification story is pretty well understood amongst, you know, high-level policymakers. I would say the president is very focused on this, actually. If I mean, and he was constantly asking about electric vehicles and trying to understand you know, what, what does that mean for transmission? He, he really was in those, those levels of detail. So that's um, really, I think, quite heartening that the story is really grasped well at, at the highest levels. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I don't know, you know, where my organs are, for example. <laughs> like, I, 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 but like somebody does, and I trust that somebody does. And you know, they're not going to be the people in the climate policy office. Although I guess that's kind of basic human information that most people should know. But I'm so I might be the outlier. But the point is just that you know, I think there's a, a fair amount of just understanding that there are analyses and experts who are keeping tabs on this, how we solve this challenge, and. In one sense, it's most important that people understand that there are solutions and we can deploy them right now and we should be deploying them faster and they actually are better and people actually want them. Those are the things that I think, um, you know, we need to break out of our little circle and sometimes even those basic things happen. Yeah, and people can save money. I mean, that's to me what's exciting about this chapter of the story is that climate policy has gone from something very big and abstract and far away from people to switch out the stuff in your life, Mm -hmm. the stuff you have your hands on, your car, your boiler, your Mm -hmm. stove, and you will be better off for it. You'll have better health, be cheaper. Another big aspect of IRA, which I don't know that I, if you had asked me like two or three years ago, what will a national climate bill look like? I don't know that I would have predicted, but there's a huge and I don't even know that this is well popularly understood, but there's a huge element of attempts to onshore or friendshore supply chains. There's a huge element. I mean, I think if, it, 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 you know, when people ask me, like I was overseas talking about IRA in Australia recently, and they asked me like how it got over the finish line, and people were asking me like, did is the US Senate finally like, absorb the problem of climate change and I was like you know but like they have absorbed that they're scared of China and they're scared of the fact that China utterly dominates the supply chain of all these technologies that we're all spending we're about to spend billions of dollars pursuing so there's a there's huge elements in the bill of really ambitious efforts in the bill to bring that stuff here and it's really like an audacious like starting from almost nothing like these parts of the country sort of legendarily have been hollowed out by globalization the manufacturing base has been hollowed out and now you know at long last here comes a democratic president trying to do something about that so where did that focus and push come from because it's not really something that it feels like emerged out of climate world or out of energy world that feels like something that you know, sort of like other people pushed into the process. What's the story there? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I think um, the president campaigned on what I think is 
a really optimistic and beautiful picture of what America could be and a real vision of building things here, of having good jobs in places where really they have not um, had very good jobs for quite some time, and that manufacturing and um, paths into unions were really good ways to provide that kind of livelihood for people who, who really have seen a lot of that, again, kind of go overseas over the years. And so there was a strong agenda. And of course, you know, this is um, probably the most labor-friendly president in a very long time, if not ever. And so he, he is very focused on how do we actually um, use the tools of the federal government to provide those types of opportunities to as many Americans as possible. So I think that was a very big part of it. You know, of course, the global competitiveness angle is always a factor, but I actually don't think that that was the main driver of at least this push on investment in domestic manufacturing of the clean equipment that we will demand here in crazy quantities that the whole globe is going to be demanding in head spinning quantities. I think it really was um, from that core focus on the American worker and trying to make those people's lives better and and have more opportunities. Was there any tension? Because you can sort of imagine, you know, if you just wanted to decarbonize as fast as possible and speed was your only guide, you'd just buy all the cheap Chinese stuff as fast as fast as possible. So in a sense, some of this stuff, you know, like take the EV tax credits, you know, like they only apply to cars with a certain amount of domestic content or they're manufactured locally, which just means, and, and, and we're seeing this right now, that we're just means that like at least for the next few years, it really narrows the, the number of EVs that are eligible for the credit. So there's, on a big picture level, it seems like there's some tension between speed and this onshoring, this desire to do it domestically. Did that feel like a tension? Was there any tension between sort of like the decarb people and the onshoring people? Um, it's a great question and one that um, much time was spent on analytics, attempting to understand this question better uh, during the last few years. So it is very much something that I think people take seriously and have thought a lot about. Now, I don't think anyone has the perfect answers to those questions, but I will say this. I think for us to succeed on our climate goals, we also need to succeed on security, right? And the security of supply of the clean equipment in addition to all kinds of other energy security issues, right? So if we are overly dependent on one or two countries for most of the equipment that we are going to need to actually solve our energy needs over time, to actually reduce costs for people over time, that's a real challenge. And uh, that could uh, hinder, even if it is not right now hindering, our speed on meeting our climate goals. And so I think there's a real recognition that we need a diversity of sources around the world for these really critical and increasingly critical energy equipment. Again, it's not like the next year fastest choice, but it is, you know, as we are thinking about being robust toward this mm -hmm. in the medium term, it really does make a big difference. Let me ask a somewhat political question. It was striking to me during this sort of crucial year of 
Build Back Better being put together and then <laughs> slowly hacked down, <laughs> that the left, broadly speaking, you know, from the center left all the way over to the sort of hardcore climate campaigners, were unusually unified, <laughs> were unusually not at one another's throat. You know, all voices were singing in the chorus, yes, pass this, yes, get this over the finish line. It was a, it was a, a real moment of unity. And even, and even I think the couple of years running up to the administration, there was a real coming together of a lot of the diverse factions of the left around a sort of common policy agenda, which I think more or less is reflected in the final bill, all of which is an unusual story for someone like me who's been following, you know, or, or you who's been around this for 10 or 15 years. Unity has not been the rule. Uh, but now it passed, <laughs> and the remaining issues, you know, what's left over, stuff like permitting, stuff like building really quickly over NIMBY objections, stuff like the protectionism, union questions around EV, manufacture, lots of potential sources of tension. Supply, you know, oil leases and liquid natural gas, export hubs. You can see already, I think, <laughs> fissures re-emerging and, and, and fights restarting. Are you worried that we're just going to descend back into... <laughs> recriminations against one another? Do you think that the unity, that we can hold on to that at all? I think that those moments of unity across all of the um, people who kind of hold different priorities in their mind, this is maybe not quite true all the time, but it is more important um, than normal when we are trying to get a big piece of federal legislation across the finish line. And that is probably not going to be where we are again over the next year, at least. Um, so I think that it's actually healthy for our democracy to have people who are fighting for their priority issue to be taken really seriously by policymakers, as is kind of the norm across most years, right? And so... These are issues that still do need to get solved. And a lot of them may not be solved at the federal level. We have a very balkanized decision-making process for a lot of our energy infrastructure, as you know better than uh, most people uh, in this country. So I think it makes a lot of sense for communities that are most impacted by these um, different types of energy extraction to be uh, vocal about uh, what they want and what they need. Um, for people who care about making sure that jobs are as high quality as possible to be vocal about what they want and what they need. And it's the job of, you know, local and state and often federal also decision makers to try to balance across all of those objectives. But it is very rare <laughs> that everyone's priorities align and really get something done. Uh, I think that we probably have another opportunity 
and we must have another opportunity for this at the federal level in the next few years because uh, I have a little counter on my computer about how many weeks we have until 2030, and it's now 327 weeks <laughs> until 2030, and we are not done uh, with what we need to get done policy-wise and certainly not technology and building things-wise before 2030. So we, we do not have infinite time to wait for that next moment of unity, and I think we need to find common ground now around the next bite at federal ambition, even as we continue to advocate for our priorities at, at every level. When do you envision Democrats having a trifecta <laughs> again and that next bite happening? Uh, I have trouble envisioning that ever, so are you more optimistic? What I try to do is always plan for the various scenarios, right? Like, if we didn't plan for the next bite at real federal climate ambition, say we did have the opportunity to do that in 14 months, we better have an idea of what we are trying to get done by that point, right? And we better have some degree of unity around what those priorities are. You know, at the same time, we better plan in case we're going to be in a big defense mode for a lot of the policies that we um, have managed to move forward over the last several years. And I do think that this next election is probably the biggest and most important climate election of our lifetimes, just because we, we, we do not have time. It's a time problem uh, <laughs> more than anything else. And so that's... That's what I'll what, say what that. is that next big piece? If you were, I mean, obviously there's the difficulty of talking about IRA with people, as I'm sure you're well aware, is it is in a lot of ways just a giant bucket filled with like dozens and dozens and dozens of individual policies. So I'm sure the next big bite will in some sense be a bucket full of policies too. But if you had to sort of summarize, like what are the gaps left over Mm -hmm. by Uncle Ira, Uncle Chip, and... Uh, Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill, thank mm -hmm. you, uh, by the three big bills that got passed. What are the big gaps where you would focus if you did have a trifecta and you were writing the next big piece? <laughs> uh, we only started to scratch the surface on decarbonization of heavy industry. There's some really good programs in uh, the Inflation Reduction Act for this, including a program that supports large-scale demonstrations of uh, very low emissions industrial processes. So when I say this, I'm, I'm talking about things like steel, making chemicals, cement, fertilizer, all these types of things that are often somewhat in the background, and therefore we are quite far behind on reducing pollution from making those things. So I think, you know, we also have a tax credit in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is um, all about trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from industrial processes, but it's capped. So it will be very oversubscribed. Mm. I think that there will be lots of people who want to do these projects that you know, um, the money will run out before they can all do the projects they want to do. So I think, you know, lifting the cap on that tax credit would be one thing um, that's pretty surgical. Another idea that we have been kicking around at Energy Innovation um, that I quite like is a production tax credit for clean heat in the industrial sector because there's a yeah, structural problem where it costs more 
given industrial electricity rates to produce low and medium temperature heat in industry using electricity than it costs to burn fossil fuels to make that heat right now. And that's a rate design issue. So could we find some way to make it more possible for us to deploy the already commercially available technologies that can electrify a lot of the heating needs in our industrial sector? Things like that. I think there's huge, uh, huge opportunities uh, for us to make a lot more wide-scale progress on the kind of down payment we put in the industrial sector from the last set of bills. What about states? Because a lot of, I mean, I think one of the sort of maybe undertold stories about IRA is the extent to which it borrowed from state, yeah. you know, sort of adventurous and cutting-edge state policy. <laughs> quite a bit of it in my own home state of Washington, if I may brag a little bit. Um, Washington's done a bunch of stuff, and for Jay Inslee's crew, that whole thing came out of Washington, and, and a lot of the stuff that they sort of pioneered ended up in IRA. So what now that states, I mean, obviously states have their hands full implementing IRA, <laughs> figuring out all the sources of funding and, and, and how to direct them and everything else, but like states that are, that are out ahead and that are, you know, sort of blazing a path, what should they do, like the Washingtons and the Colorados, and now uh, Michigan, welcome Michigan to the club, Uh, what should they be doing? So first of all, I would say that um, Governor Inslee's leadership on the climate agenda from when he first joined the presidential race as our climate president um, and really released a lot of very detailed plans of what he would do to address the climate crisis. You are absolutely right. Much of that same stuff ended up in the final bills. And the organization that was started by his former team, Evergreen, is still at it and making a lot of really good good recommendations on progress. So I'm grateful to your governor for that. <laughs> um, I think as far as what states that want to be ahead now can be doing, there's plenty of things, right? So the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law fundamentally change the opportunities that states have to deliver very low cost energy to their citizens that also improves people's health. And that is not really factored into a lot of state energy planning yet. Um, So that's one thing that just honestly, like rerunning the numbers to say, look, you know, actually this stuff is turns out to be really pretty affordable now. It's cheaper than continuing to rely on polluting energy sources and then thinking hard about what kind of electrical grid expansion would be required to accommodate that very low cost clean energy. And that's both at the transmission scale, so large, long distance lines, but also very much at the distribution scale. So the small lines that go from the substation to your house, we also need to be thinking about how we optimize for all of the low cost energy sources and modern kind of building equipment at that level as well. Adopting clean energy standards, you mentioned Michigan. Um, There have been a slew of states that have increased the ambition or altogether adopted new clean energy standards over the last couple of years. Minnesota started off this year. Michigan is ending this year as far as two new states that have uh, joined in with with ambitious clean energy standards. Um, 
there's just a huge amount of opportunity presented by the federal incentives in the electricity space. Also, state and city economic development offices could be really working hard to, to look at what are the incentives and programs offered from these new federal bills that could bring low emissions manufacturing to their region. Um, look at how you're stacking up against the other states and cities and you know how attractive are you making it for businesses to locate uh, those low pollution, zero pollution uh, factories in your area and all that local re tax revenue and jobs that come along with, with doing that. Um, I think that's a huge thing that it, you know not enough people are, are paying attention to. There's also some uh, building sector programs that were established in the laws that the states have a lot of control over designing and implementing. So making sure that those are really effective, that they are actually reaching families that are low and moderate income with you know technologies and equipment for their buildings that will help them reduce their energy bills. That's really the name of the game for that. And there's a lot of run room for states to do a lot on that too. And uh, I'm going to take host's prerogative and add one more uh, to your list there. There is a housing crisis, which is not unrelated to the climate crisis. Yes. And um, a lot of that goes down at the state level, discouraging sprawl, encouraging infill, encouraging middle, middle housing, et cetera, et cetera. Also something my state has been doing great stuff on, and Colorado as well. Yeah. Um, I think that's an underlooked piece of the climate fight and an underlooked set of allies, too. What about uh, Biden? What should he be doing without Congress up until the election? And then let's say he's reelected and doesn't have Congress. And so he's, he's restricted to executive actions. I mean, this was sort of like this is a very familiar. You remember when the clean power plan, Obama's clean power plan, got crushed, and everybody was like, "All right, what can you do with regulations?" But um, or what can you do with executive actions? But you know, uh, we're back there again. So, what can Biden do with the power of the federal government through executive action that can fill in some of the gaps in the legislation? The most important priority for the, the year up until the end of this first term is to finalize rules that um, will reduce pollution via the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, he has um, quite a few rules that are not yet finalized that are very important. And so kind of the, the way to think about it is that the bills that crossed the finish line over the first couple of years of the administration provided a lot of incentives for companies to um, transition to cleaner products, whatever industry they may be in. And so we need to come in and shore up on the back end of that the rules that will ensure that they actually are held accountable for pollution that continues to harm people's health. So we have a rule that will limit methane emissions from the oil and gas sector, a rule that will uh, limit pollution and improve efficiency of vehicles, both light cars and heavy-duty vehicles. Didn't they propose yeah. something on that, but it's not finalized. Exactly. Yet. It's finalizing them at the you know, level of ambition that really 
um, we need to see. And then, of course, the power plant rules are back. Um, 111, uh, trying to update those rules to make sure that we are taking account of the best available technology right now um, and all of the legal constraints that surround that section of the Clean Air Act. All of those things are just incredibly important for us to finish sooner rather than later in this last year before uh, the election. And then you asked about the next term. I think, you know, one under explored area is just we are not doing what we can to limit public health impacts of pollution from factories. There's a lot of evidence of local impacts on communities from uh, dirty operations. And those rules also need to be modernized to understand now what kind of technologies do we have to control some of that? And how do we get the companies to really be thinking about installing those? I want to take some questions. But I got one more, one more to throw at you, and it's unanswerables. So we'll forgive you if you don't have an answer. <laughs> But one of the thorny problems that everyone's facing right now is a set of sort of contradictory needs. On the one hand, we need to build a bunch of stuff really, really, really quickly. I don't know if people have their head wrapped around it. Like we need to like two, three X the pace of building everything, everything, solar, wind, nuclear, geothermal, power lines, we need to hit the targets. We need to be building a lot of it really fast. But we have these built up set of, of institutions and rules and practices that make it slow to do things in the US, slow and expensive to build infrastructure. There's tons and tons of environmental regulations that are now being used to block the building of power lines and, and solar panels. There's a lot of nimbyism about power lines, about hydrogen hubs, about uh, CO2 pipelines, wind and solar. And then also, on top of that, there is, I think, a wide recognition in our world of the need to have this transition not be as, let's say, crude and unjust as, as previous you know, uh, uh, transitions, and a need to take vulnerable communities, their wishes, their feedback, more into account. So all of those are kind of intention. You want a lot of speed and you have a lot of stuff that's slowing us down, some of which is justified, some of which isn't. So how do you wrap your head around that whole naughty set of issues? How do we think about going fast and also being careful and also being just and also being environmentally sensitive Etc. Yeah. You said this, but there is a reason why it's tough to build things. And it's because industries of the past have a history of railroading over communities and really not taking people's views into account. Um, so I think that that's really important for us to keep front of mind. At the same time, I think one thing that gets lost in these conversations often is that the scale of extraction and the amount of pollution associated with continuing with a fossil fuel centered energy system is 
multiple orders of magnitude larger than any impacts from a cleaner energy system. And I've seen different estimates of this, but it's something like one five hundred and thirty-seventh the amount <laughs> of extraction associated with hitting all the way to net yeah, zero. But not necessarily the same people affected, right? That's like exactly it's be right. New people who are seeing this stuff this, this time around. Yes, and that's exactly right. And that's why I think it's really important for us to have a community by community approach. That is tough. Um, but I think that there are some best practices that we can look to. And one that I particularly like is something that we identified actually in a project we did at Energy Innovation about 10 years ago called America's Power Plan. And it was all about what's the suite of policies that we need to get in place in order to transform our electricity system. And one of the things was about siting and how we kind of get this infrastructure built. And the the core recommendation of that section, which was led by um, people from these more uh, rural areas that we're seeing that siting in, in their areas was that there are business models now where actually some of the profit can be shared with the communities. So it's not just about the tax revenue that's supporting the schools and hospitals in a local area, but it's also about creating some headroom in that actual investment strategy for um, providing some compensation to the communities that are hosting these large infrastructure projects. So that's one thing that does tend, I think, to reach people. But there's plenty of other things, and it is unfortunately going to be very much a community-by-community conversation about what actually do people want there. And that's inherently not going to be the fastest thing, but that's probably what's required. I mean, I think the hope is, insofar as people have hope on this set of issues, is that there's some level of early community engagement and early benefit sharing that avoids trouble later and thus makes the whole process faster, mm-hmm. right? There's some magic sweet perfect spot, mim- sweet spot <laughs> uh, that, that, that is enough community engagement to satisfy a community and then less fighting later. But I don't know that anybody's got the formula for that just yet. Um, we could talk forever, but I'd love to take some questions in the time we have left. Uh, we have mics around, I think. Oh, and I should say, uh, we don't have much time, and uh, we're recording, so if you have more of a comment than a question, I encourage you to not do that, and instead, <laughs> just have a question. Sonia and David, amazing conversation. Thank you very much. Sonia, gonna, uh, actually, David and Sonia, curious, putting you on the spot, if you have a knee-jerk thought on what area or sector in the, call it the electron value chain, supply chain, whether it's finance, transmission, battery storage, what area has more or better technology ready to deploy or almost ready to deploy that could make as much difference as possible the fastest? Because obviously we are very low on time. Thanks. I have an idea. Go ahead, yeah, though. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am currently obsessed with thermal storage. Uh, that's This is my dark horse candidate for something that's going to make a big difference and is ready to go, mainly because it's extremely low tech. I mean, in, in some sense, it's a, it's, a, it's a box of rocks. So the idea is you have these industrial heating needs. You need industrial heat. Right now, the cheapest way to do that is burning fossil fuels. 
Um, direct electrification is difficult for some of that to produce the sort of intense ongoing heat that some processes need. But you build a bunch of renewables, dump the power into a heat battery, into a box of rocks, because uh, you know, the renewable energy is variable, but if you put it into a heat battery, then you can get steady 24-7 output out of the heat battery. And so instead of a natural gas pipeline and a natural gas boiler or a coal truck and a, and a, a coal kiln, you have a transmission line and a heat battery. And then voila, you've solved the industrial heat problem. And, and, and heat batteries are, I mean, there's a lot of cool, I shouldn't say it's low tech, there's a lot of cool innovation happening, but basically like you're heating up rocks, they retain heat really well. Like you can get 95 to 98% of the heat back out. So uh, it's incredibly efficient. So the one other thing I'd say about that is the main thing holding back renewable energy development right now is trying to get connected to grids is the interconnection queue is just waiting to, for your slot. But if you just build your renewables and dump the energy directly into a heat battery, which is attached to an industrial facility, then that's a whole new area for renewable energy developers. They don't have to wait for the grid. They can just build next to industrial uses with a heat battery in between. And that's like half the final energy we use is heat. So that's like a huge new opportunity for renewable energy developers to get around the grid connection issue. I love it. Um, we love heat batteries at Energy Innovation, and we have several uh, pieces of work on that, on that too, and love it. So totally agree with you, Dave. I, the other one I would add is another thing that is not really like a complicated technology, but it's just uh, very exciting to me because of its potential, and that's just advanced conductors. So that's basically, they sound advanced, but they're actually not that advanced. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, being able to use new transmission lines that carry quite a lot more energy on the existing pathways of the lines that we have now. So we just haven't updated our transmission lines in a lot of years in most of the country. Texas has done a little, and you know we built some transmission here and there, so it's a little bit newer, but a lot of our transmission lines are just pretty old. And uh, there's a new analysis which uh, just came out from UC Berkeley looking at the potential for advanced conductors in the United States. And I wish I could remember the headline, but it's at least two times the transfer capacity of our existing transmission system that we could get if we uh, replaced all those old lines with just newer ones that have been you know, used in other countries and even used a little bit here in the US. And that's a huge boost to getting the kind of transfer of electricity across our country that we need if we're going to be transitioning to a lot more clean energy. Yeah. There's a whole suite of technologies that get more out of the existing built transmission line. It's very hard to build new ones, but you can get a lot more throughput through existing ones with existing technologies. That's mostly just a regulatory yeah. financial issue. Uh, uh, huh? Hi, my name is Yetang. Thank you so much for this wonderful uh, conversation. Uh, I think part of the beauty of IRA is that um, it's not only a game changer for climate solution uh, deployment here in the US, but also potentially a way to inspire a wave of um, similar climate uh, measures in the world. Do you have any advice for other governments when they're thinking about like how do we roll out something similar to IRA? Thank you. Oh my goodness. 
Do I? I'll go, I'll, I'll go first on that one because this is very much on my mind. I, so I, I went to Australia uh, a few months ago at the behest of the big electrical union there precisely because they've just elected a labor government after years and years of conservative government and it's very much a live issue in the labor party. What do we do on climate? We want, so that's, in a sense, they've, they've been burned by the carbon tax, they've been burned by their whole history with climate policy. But one thing I heard over and over again, I heard the Australian energy minister say more than once, so I know it wasn't just a one-off line, he said that IRA is the most significant policy development for climate ever, including the Paris Agreement. So like, I really don't think you can overstate the extent to which policymakers in other countries have been galvanized by this. Like they don't, they don't know about the ugly sausage making. They don't, you know, they don't necessarily know about the gaps. All they've heard is like the US is in the game now and we've got to get in the game or get left behind. You know, and I think every country has its own sort of strengths, its own place in the future clean energy economy. So for like Australia, Australia is, the, is, is in the top five producers of, or I think in the top two producers of like the five most important critical minerals that everybody's talking about needing. You know, and they have a very like dig up rocks based <laughs> economy. And I was like, look, just dig up different rocks. Like we, there's a huge global market specifically looking for these minerals from friendly sources. Like be that, you know, and like every country's got their own thing, but I think, um, I think uh, every country has got to get active is the thing and, 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 and maximize their own individual advantages and just take advantage of like, there's just gonna be a ton of money flowing around the world for this stuff. So just like stick your finger in it, get some of that, get some of that money, you know? What Dave said. <laughs> Sonia, do you ever dream of a carbon tax? And if so, what are you dreaming about uh, when, you, when you are? And then David, do you have any comments on Washington State's uh, experiment with a carbon tax over the past year? Do you dream of carbon taxes? Yeah, I guess it depends uh, on the night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what you had to eat? Uh, it, uh, gosh, yeah. So I think um, when carbon taxes were first proposed um, 50 plus years ago, I think that would have been a great time to adopt a carbon price. Um, and that a carbon price that grew over time, starting back then, to reflect, you know, the actual cost of the damage that carbon pollution is doing to uh, people and to our capability to have a livable civilization. Like, I dream of that having happened. I think uh, we are at a different point in the urgency of the climate crisis than we were back then. And I encourage any um, kind of internalization of the costs of that pollution in whatever way uh, now. And some of that just looks different than it might have if we had, had gotten that project started when we probably should have. <laughs> I actually think Washington State's history with this is a great illustration of the political economy of carbon taxes. You know, because economists love them, 
because on a spreadsheet, it is the cheapest and most efficient way to get to a particular target. But as I have tried to point out to many economists over the years, the world is not a spreadsheet. So, <laughs> and, in, and in fact, a policy that penalizes everyone in a visible way and benefits no one in particular is the opposite of good politics. It's a, a, a policy that hurts everyone and helps no one strands you and the only people you have at your back are economists and what you know what brigades do they command or whatever the whatever the phrase is so you know and, and Washington tried it via direct democracy via via a ballot measure several times and a lot of people poured themselves into <laughs> trying to get it over the finish line and it didn't work and so then Washington resorted to uh, what people like me were saying all along, you know, do policies that benefit people, do active, spend money where it's visible and in such a way that it creates visible jobs and like, you know, these, these, are not, these things are not perfect on a spreadsheet, but a, a policy in the real world is better than any theoretical <laughs> policy. Any policy in the real world is better than anything in your, in your head. So for, for years I was sort of like the carbon tax throw cold water on it guy. <laughs> it, was kind of my, it was kind of my shtick for a while. But now I actually think, now that kind of things are going and money's flowing and things are getting subsidized, I think there will be ways of pricing carbon around the margins or in specific industries or in specific contexts, not the headline policy, not the top line policy, but sort of a supplemental backstop type of policy, like the methane fee in IRA is, is a kind of carbon tax, you know, a narrowly focused carbon tax. So I think things like that, like in an individual state or, or in an individual industry, or uh, maybe, and other people have higher hopes about this than I do, but maybe in federal budget negotiations, they badly need revenue, <laughs> they badly need revenue, and that's a a good source of revenue, so I don't, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that something like that could fall out of federal budget negotiations. But it just won't be the main thing. It's going to be a backstop wherever it wherever it pops up. Hey guys, uh, thank you for this. This is pretty awesome. A uh, couple things. Just first on uh, IRA in different countries. I live in Canada and. Uh, Believe me, we just don't have this thing called a shiny credit card that it seems to have like no limit. <laughs> we do have a tax base that, you know, that limits us to what we can and cannot do. But my question is on actually on supply chain. So basically, uh, I mean, I develop renewable natural gas projects uh, and the IRA or IRA came out and said, OK, like, you know, if you buy things that are built in America, you know, we're going to give you X, X extra. Right. And then we go, and you double click on it uh, and I start buying a compressor here in the U.S. And then I go, I'm like, perfect, I qualify, right? Uh, but the instruction from IRS like, just doubles down on it. So every single component inside that compressor needs to be made in America. There's probably like 20 countries that, you know, even though it's assembled here, that make up that compressor. So in what way, okay, nearshoring is great and, and we love it, uh, inshoring is better. In what ways are we gonna expand? I mean, do you guys see like, before we bring everything home, that's going to take time. Do you guys see an extension, perhaps, with like friendly countries for to comply with some of this, like an evolution of that? Because that's not going to happen tomorrow. I'm building projects today, and I cannot meet that requirement. Nobody can. 
Like, how do you see this happening? Because right now it's, it sounds great on paper, la la land, but in reality it uh, doesn't work. Sure. So um, I think to your last point, uh, some of the domestic requirements are actually Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So for EV assembling and stuff like that, I, I do think um, uh, the other the other piece you raised was about the cost of this. And uh, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, it is actually more than paid for uh, through all kinds of other non-climate related, non-carbon tax, but um, revenue generating activities, including shoring up our um, tax cheats. But um, I think as far as moving forward, um, you know, this this is a bill that was made by a lot of hands, and uh, there was a lot of provisions in there that had to do with uh, where different components were manufactured. And there, this will be a learning opportunity for uh, the federal government to understand, you know, how much are we actually restricting um, the capability to, to deploy technologies with these requirements, and how much are we actually making an impact on global supply chains. And it's actually wild. I mean, the battery supply chain uh, requirements were something that we got lots of phone calls about uh, when that first came out in the Inflation Reduction Act. This is going to be impossible to meet. Nothing will ever qualify. You're going to tank the industry. And within what? It's been 15 months. Uh, we've seen an incredible number of investments in domestic battery manufacturing. And that's creating all kinds of um, new industries, new jobs. And it's actually pretty amazing to see how quickly the global supply chain for those you know, headline components, at least, is getting rewired in such a short period of time. So I think there's there's learning amongst all of us, right? Like, you know, maybe some of the requirements are too stringent and they just won't be met. In other cases, they might have sounded stringent, but they actually are having the impact that the law was intending. So it's a mix, I think. There's a sort of like a loophole in the EV tax credits where you can get the tax credit if you lease it, even if it's not domestic content and then the IRS sort of like wrote it so that leasing is super easy and then Manchin got his butt up on his shoulders and now wants to reverse his own bill. But yeah, I think Sonia's exactly right. One, there's been on the order of like $250 billion of new investment in manufacturing, domestic manufacturing in the US in the year since IRA passed, which is just mind blowing. So one, I think, you're right that the supply chains will reconfigure quickly. Two, I think this will give other countries incentive to be friendly, to get on the friendly list, and maybe even give them incentive to like clean up their labor practices and pass some laws about mining or whatever, and be you know get friendlier so they can get their piece of this pie. And then I think probably you're also right that some of this will be tweaked by federal agencies if it turns out to be too restrictive in the future. Like, I think it's gonna settle itself. It'll work itself out. There'll be a lot of chaos in the, <laughs> in the interim, but I think it'll, I think it'll work itself out. Uh, you talked about agenda setting at a future point of unity, and I think that so much of the legislation that was just discussed is understandably focused on the US's transition, but it's also a global transition, and the US especially has a role in contributing to that transition outside its borders. 
I'm interested if you could choose, you know, in that future point of unity, perhaps that would be a time to sort of solidify what the U.S. can do abroad. And perhaps an example of that would be climate finance with a legislative backstop. If something could be done at a national legislation level in the future, what would be something you might try to slip in? The, the, the first thing I'll say is that the single best thing the U.S. can do to accelerate decarbonization in other countries is to drive down the cost of decarbonization technologies. And that is what the IRA is designed to do. So every bit that these technologies get cheaper, it makes it easier and faster for developing nations to opt for them. So that's like, uh, you know, kind of a convenient <laughs> answer, but I really think it's true. I really think um, that's our primary role and that's the primary, um, that's going to be America's primary role in this. I am, I guess, skeptical about the political viability of large-scale funding of the loss and damage stuff and the climate fund stuff. I mean, it's all great. I would love to see it, but I'm, that would take a lot of unity <laughs> among Democrats because you're never going to get any Republican votes for sending money abroad like that. So, uh, but I do think there's uh, tons and tons of lower level opportunities for knowledge sharing and for technology development sharing and for, you know, more cooperation. Like right now, Speaking of the anti-China stuff, like Republicans are upset because like, what is it, this car factory, is it Toyota? I forget the, the factory, but they like brought in a Chinese team to sort of help them learn how to do this stuff with batteries. And now Marco Rubio is all like, oh, you're letting the Chinese into your factory. And I'm just like, Jesus, like we should be learning from one another. And I think we should, we could formalize a lot more of that. Just uh, bring over scientists and send, and send scientists abroad to do technology sharing. Like ultimately I think making technology cheap for the rest of the world is the most direct route from A to B in terms of helping other countries. But maybe you have other things to say about that? I think what you said is fantastic. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Yale, for all your hospitality. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>